Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I am your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs, reporting for the Military and Veteran Lifestyle website, ConnectingVets.com. Now, in this segment, we're going to talk uh, at great length today uh, about addiction. And I think it's important, not because it's a certain time of the year or a specific holiday of the month, but uh, I want to read from the Safe Projects website and share with you why I think this is something that we can talk about any week, any month of any year. And veterans are uniquely vulnerable to the risk of substance misuse and often losing that sense of purpose, the camaraderie, the things that we identified with as a military member and a part of that team. Uh, You know, it can sound like just empty words, but it really is the truth. The military is a kind of job that is a lifestyle where you're so closely knit that you don't find that in the outside world. And suddenly your nine to five job seems a little less than fulfilling in life. Well, can slowly begin to suck. And these stressors can be exacerbated and have been exacerbated over the last two years during the isolation of the pandemic. Signs of substance misuse can often go undetected due to the military culture that sees getting help as a sign of weakness. Now add all that to the fact that many veterans have chronic pain. And whether it's from the VA or their private doctor are being prescribed some sort of painkillers. So when considering all those factors, you've got a perfect storm for a veteran who doesn't see addiction coming and then doesn't see a way out. Veterans are twice as likely to die from an accidental overdose than other members of society. And being that veterans are a high-risk population, now is the opportunity to bring light to this issue and really help end that stigma. And our guests today are really going to help shine a light on that. Back in 2017, after his extensive military career, Admiral Sandy Winnefeld, my former XO on my very first military assignment on the USS John C. Stennis, Captain Winnefeld back then, went on to become Admiral Winnefeld and uh, Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
He and his wife, Mary, had a tragic loss of their son, Jonathan, due to an accidental overdose. And the Winifolds quickly turned their grief into action. Their nonprofit is now committed to overcoming the epidemic of addiction through education, resource programs, communities, schools, workplaces, and of course, focusing on our very own veteran community. So here to join us today is my former XO, Admiral Sandy Winnefeld, and Jeff Horowitz, the co-founder of the nonprofit Safe Project, Stop the Addiction Fatality Epidemic. So with that, welcome, Admiral. How are you, sir? I'm doing terrific, Phil. It's really good to see you again, and I'm, I'm so pleased to see that you're doing so well in your post-Navy experience, uh, actually making a difference for veterans, which is, uh, you know, I salute you uh, for that. And thank you very much. And I would also uh, add that Jeff is a veteran as well. So we are all in good company here as a retired Navy Judge Advocate General. Uh, So we're lucky to have him, uh, you know, as our chief operating officer. And uh, it's really a pleasure to be with you today for both of us. Yeah, Jeff, welcome to the show again. Good Good to meet you for the first time. Former JAG officer. Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thanks for having me, Phil. It's great to be here and great to be part of Safe Project. Let's start with some lighthearted fun stuff, because I found this fun fact out years ago, and I've never actually asked you about it. But uh, we'll start with Jeff. Um, As a jag, is A Few Good Men accurate? Is that movie at all? (laughs) Have you ever had to cross a colonel on the stand and it gets... It was it was actually written about me, Phil. So uh, yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, no, he tells I mean, me that all the time. You can't handle the truth. <laughs> and looking at you, I can see the resemblance to Tom Cruise. You know, <laughs> speaking of Tom Cruise, um, over the weekend, of course, Top Gun Two came out, and I, you know, remember the days of feeling like Top Gun, walking the flight deck of the Stennis. There I was, a 21-year-old kid feeling cool with my spiked Iceman hair and my Ray-Bans and walking off that carrier, man. You you had a certain swagger about you. Fun fact, Admiral Sandy Winnefeld, you were a naval aviator. You were at Top Gun. Um, I don't share with me fun fact. Is it like anything like we saw in the <laughs> movies? Or did how close did you get to the cast and crew? Well, well, first, I haven't seen the second Top Gun movie yet because I was overseas at a wedding for the last week. So I look forward to you know checking in with the team to see how they're doing. But uh, actually, uh, I was an instructor at Top Gun when they made the movie. So I had a chance to meet the cast and crew and flew a little bit. Uh, actually took Tom Cruise and Tony Edwards out with a couple other guys to uh, uh, a bar because they were doing their research on us. I had no idea who Tom Cruise was. You know, uh, girls kept running up to this guy in a ponytail. Uh, and you know, like, yeah, and I, I was like, okay, well, this guy must be important. <laughs> anyway, it was uh, actually a very good experience. And I, I found out and I finally got to see the movie that these people actually do know what they're doing. Cause it didn't feel like it when they were making the movie. Cause they were, they would, they would put together scenes that, that didn't make any sense to us. But then when you saw the film, it's like, okay, these people actually are pretty smart. Uh, so it's interesting experience. Oh, that's awesome. Did you give him any critique on the call signs from what I've learned in these last several years from meeting a lot more aviators uh, is that the call signs usually not flattering yet in the movie, these guys have such good, like who doesn't want to be Iceman? Who doesn't want to be Maverick? But like, aren't the, aren't, aren't call signs normally sort of like busting your chops? Like they call somebody puker or they call somebody like, well, it kind of varies. Uh, they, you, you try to get a call sign early on that, you know, is not off the wall, but makes sense. And then you try to hang on to it. Uh, if you do something stupid or there's some quirk to your name, then there's a chance that something else will stick. 
And of course, if, if you make a mistake and they try to give you a different call sign and you act like you don't like it, then it probably will stick. So if you, <laughs> if you don't act like you don't care, maybe you can go back to your old call sign. But the, 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 the real question I think was uh, the help we gave was with some of the lines in the movie uh, they picked up and during their research on things like, you know, do some of that pilot stuff. Uh, uh, I hate it when that happens or, you know, whatever. Uh, and, uh, you know, oh, I'm going to go ballistic, you know, whatever. <laughs> Some of those are actually lines that we fed to them and they used in the original movie. Oh, that's great. Fun fact. And I can't believe that as an E4 on your ship, designing the ship's paper, I never dove deeper into that story. But I guess oh. my 21-year-old self wasn't interested in research, but thank you well, so and, much. And my uh, 40-year-old self felt no need to, you know, brag to everybody that I had had that experience, <laughs> a little humility. Uh, you know, people can find out as they find out. <laughs> Jeff, we know in the we know in the wardroom he didn't let anybody forget the fact that he was a Top Gun instructor. I, <laughs> I was not assigned to the John C. Stennis, but I heard about it. So I'm just trying. As the XO, you're just trying to get some sleep. Uh, you know, <laughs> Eighteen departments, you know, five thousand people on the ship. Uh, you know, there's, there's uh, you know plenty of time for sleep when you're dead. Is what uh, what we used to say to each other. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. I only have two kids. You had five thousand on a ship. Ouch. And some of them, you know, there's always somebody doing something you wish they weren't doing. Never me, sir. Never me. That's right. Of course. All right. <laughs> Let's talk. Speaking of kids, um, segue there into, you know, your family endured the tragedy of losing a son to uh, an overdose. And it's an all too common occurrence in this America. It is something that we need to put an end to. And that fentanyl has now woven its way into the fabric of drug use across the nation, making it even more complex for addicts who sometimes maybe even aren't addicts yet are making an experimental wrong first choice and realizing that this drug so potent can kill even those that try it once. I mean, it is just a nasty situation we find ourselves in. And um, I want to start with just sort of uh, the safe project. Um, I'll give you guys each just a couple minutes, anything you want to say about what this safe project is, and then we'll dive into how we can all, you know, find a useful resource within it. But uh, let's start with Jeff. Go ahead. Uh, you want to share with me the work that the safe project's doing? Well, we, we were created by Sandy and Mary uh, when they tragically lost Jonathan. And the focus that Sandy brought to bear was the same focus that he brought from his military experience as well as from his experience as a, as a Georgia Tech engineer. And, and that is he looked, he and Mary looked at the crisis and looked at addiction holistically and realized that uh, there are a lot of great people doing things in certain wickets in certain areas, such as in public awareness or in treatment or in recovery, but we weren't doing it together as a country. And so Sandy and Mary created uh, what we refer to as the six lines of operation, which are six very distinct areas that we need to work collaboratively together. And then we take those six lines of operation and we run them into four different stakeholders. We call them initiatives. Well, you know, the whole impetus for the project was to prevent, uh, people and families uh, from experiencing the same loss that we experienced. So that's what we wake up in the morning every day and think about how can we save a life? And that <clears throat> spans a whole spectrum from, you know, prevention, <clears throat> which is what you're sort of speaking to in a way when you say, Hey, just don't do it, but that's not going to work all by itself, but prevention, uh, managing it in the moment when somebody's actually in an overdose that could be fatal. And then, uh, you know, after that, trying to encourage people in recovery 
getting them treatment it's, and recovery housing and the like. So there's a whole spectrum along <clears throat> um, what it is we're trying to do. And we, we try very hard to do uh, a couple of very important things. One, we don't want to compete with anybody else in this space. There are a lot of nonprofits out there. Many of them are just local nonprofits that are doing things as simple as giving naloxone out uh, to people to, to help people recover from overdoses. <clears throat> we want to take a, a national scope. Uh, we will work with anybody. All boats rise together in this. So we, we try very, very hard to keep our ego out of it. Another one is we're not judgmental. We, we realize, uh, I take a very realistic approach to this, that there are actually people who are out there <clears throat> suffering from addiction, which is a disease, not a mental failing or a moral failing. And that's how we treat it. Uh, so we believe in all kinds of, of approaches to that, not only uh, reducing stigma, which is public enemy number one of this crisis, which is one of the reasons why Mary and I talk about it, because if people of our, whatever you want to call it, seniority or you name it, are willing to speak openly that, hey, we, our family suffered from this, then maybe others will as well, all the way to things like harm reduction, uh, you know, getting people uh, fentanyl testing strips and drug disposal bags and naloxone and trying to help them uh, uh, with a pathway into treatment and recovery. Uh, in a very non-judgmental way. So uh, it's a big multi-pronged effort. As you say, it's very complex and there's not one single lever that we will pull as a nation to end this crisis. As Jeff pointed out, there, it's a very complicated problem. And if if it weren't so tragic, it would actually be a fun problem because complex problems are fun to solve. But this is deadly serious. And as you pointed out very clearly, Phil, um, fentanyl is a new dimension to this. It was tragic enough when there were 60,000 people a year we were losing. Now we're losing over 100,000. And many of them are doing fentanyl for the first time and not even knowing it because it's been mixed into some other drug. So this is not your father's or mother's uh, problem. It's it's here today and it's deadly. Mm. All right, let's talk a little bit about each of the buckets that you guys are working in, the spaces you're working in. I gathered from looking at the website, uh, the No Shame Movement, the Pledge, and all the environments that you guys have. It looks like you're focusing on vets, campuses, workplaces, and communities. Talk to me, Jeff, a little blurb about each, how how you're reaching out to vets, how you're trying to make campuses better, workplaces better, home lives and communities better. Well, for us today, I think veterans is the most important, so I'll, I'll go to them last. From a community standpoint, we really need to meet a community where they're at. There's a lot of folks talking about, well, don't worry about it. The litigation money is going to save the day. But the reality is everyone's walking in with different practices, different ideas, different concepts, and not all the money is trickling down in a comprehensive way. And so we'll meet with communities. We'll offer communities what we have a playbook pretty soon. I think in the, this month or starting tomorrow, next month, I kind of lost track of the day. But in June 1st, we'll start to roll out our Safe Solutions Program, which is an electronic problem-solving program where you can find um, uh, what outcomes you're looking for as a community. And we'll walk them through a Wikipedia program or Wikipedia outlined practice with best practices, videos, and things to help a community through those. And we've crowdsourced that from folks in the field, and we'll continue to build those options and outcomes for individual communities so that a community can um, be successful in competing where they want to address the, the crisis. Our- if I can ask right there, with respect to the communities, then are you talking about like when city governments are 
admitting that there is a real problem in their area, uh, whether it's the hills of Appalachia or whether it's, uh, you know, the progressive, uh, you know, pink hairs in Portland. Um, are we like, would a city come to you and say, hey, we have too many ODs in this zip code area, in this major metro area? What can you guys help consult us on to change the game in our city? Cities are uh, community coalitions will come to us uh, mm. and it's it works basically where they're at, where they want to go. We'll have the resource available. We've worked with uh, uh, county executives and others to come up with partial solutions or help them through more comprehensive solutions. Our belief is that you need to be more comprehensive, but if a city and a community isn't at that point, we can help them, whether it's something simple as trying to prevent future overdoses or prevent future addiction, whether it's simple as helping them pass out naloxone or helping them get establish a take-back program to get rid of the excess drugs in people's medicine cabinets. Mm. Uh, there's all kinds of programs there that we can do, and usually it's a city, or we'll look at overdose numbers. We'll look at overdose numbers uh, predominantly in minority communities of late, because they're the ones that are being overlooked and where fentanyl is really taking a toll and we'll do what we can to reach out to them and offer our services. And as we wrap with community uh, efforts real quick, Admiral Winnefeld, where are you or where is the safe project on the communities that have safe spaces for drug use? I know that that has been looked at with a little bit of debate because some folks are like, you're allowing it to happen. Of course, you're going to have people on drugs. And then there's those that are like, well, it's better than them doing it somewhere, overdosing in the park or in the tent encampment and then, you know, you know, adding another death to the toll. Yeah. You know, the knee jerk reaction to that and an an understandable knee jerk reaction is, Oh, you're promoting drug use. Uh, You know, you're only making things worse. And, and, and if you've ever had had this terrible experience or you've really drilled into what this crisis is like for individual people and the whole uh, personal dynamics of it, 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 Pretty, you can pretty quickly come to the conclusion that it makes sense for us to try this in the U.S. It's worked overseas in other countries. Does it fit within our culture? We need to try it. And essentially, there are a couple of, of really good things that come out of it. First of all, uh, you, you can immediately save lives right on the spot. You, you, it, it's a controlled usage where there, where there are, you know, you hate to use the term supervised usage, but, you know, it's a lot less likely that somebody's going to have an overdose if they're in that environment. And if they do, there's help there immediately. Uh, to to bring somebody out of it, uh, you, you're guaranteed to not be sort of passing disease through uh, used needles. Uh, you know, that that sort of safety, and perhaps as important or more important than anything, is that uh, people uh, who are suffering from this substance uh, abuse problem very often eventually come to the, the the point where they go, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready to go into treatment and try to conquer this thing. And if they're doing it in that environment, that help is right there, immediately available. And if somebody says, okay, I'm done, they can vector them right into treatment. To your point, somebody's overdosing uh, in their home or in a dormitory room like our son did or uh, in, a, in a park under and overhead, it doesn't matter. They don't have any of that available to them. So again, uh, we were focused on saving lives. We're, we're not focused on morality or anything like that. We're just trying to keep people from dying from this terrible disease. And I'll follow up with you, Admiral, and then jump to you, Jeff, for the last one. But let's talk real quick about campuses. I, I, I know the tragedy with the family and your son, college dorm, young guy, probably just in his experimental phase of life, you know, trying this, trying that. Um, I, 
winds up in the grips of this and ends up, you know, overdosing in a college dorm. So what types of uh, what types of channels or what types of programming do we have at college campuses to prevent uh, future situations like that through the SAFE project? Well, if you're if you're a college campus that has anywhere from you know 2000 to 20,000 uh, young men and women there, you can pretty much be guaranteed that there's somebody there either suffering actively from substance use or who's in recovery from uh, previous substance use. And it's, it's sort of the rare campus that approaches that in a very thoughtful way. Every campus will tell you they do, oh, we have mental health services or we have medical services. But in fact, what it really takes is a collegiate recovery program, a community of young people who are in recovery, who are able to support each other, who understand what each of the others are going through and and can provide that mutual support that that exponentially increases their odds of successfully making it through campus and in fact you find that kids that are in uh, collegiate recovery programs generally have higher graduation rates generally have higher GPAs than the rest of the campus community so we uh, do a lot to uh, support campuses that have these collegiate recovery programs who have sort of overcome that stigma and are are able to do that. We do it through direct support. We also uh, have a collegiate recovery leadership academy where we bring 50 people in in the fall for a very intensive weekend of leadership instruction and mentoring and recovery support. And then they're expected to go back to their their campus. And they have a a year-long public service project they've got to do. And then they outbrief that at the end of the year. And we've had, we think, pretty good results from that program. So, so, uh, Safe campuses, we call it, is, is one yeah. of our more successful programs. We're very proud of it. I think almost 200 campuses we're supporting right now. Is that right, Jeff? That's correct. Yes, sir. Mm. Amen. And I like how you put that. It's not a moral issue. And it's also, it's not something psychotherapy or a clinician can just talk about through cognitive behavioral therapy. The old sit on the couch, here's some Kleenex. Let's talk about your you know issues. Um, this is psychology kind of filtered through fellow addicts and through people that understand the psychology and the dimensions and the layers to being addicted to something versus just having traumas you need to sort through in your, in your brain. So I like it. Um, of course, focusing on veterans is, is one of the primary things that brings us together today. And Jeff, talk to me a little bit about what uh, the safe project offers the veteran community and how they can engage, how they can get involved and what we really as vets need to know more so than anybody else in society. Uh, thanks. Well, I think that uh, the most important thing from a veteran standpoint is that when we are trained to be on active duty, it's really easy to train us to make us a standard person. But then when we're released on active duty, to a large degree, we're let go. Uh, we now need to find our true best self. We now have to deal with the change in life and the change of circumstances that we have. We now have to realize, was this helpful to me or was this not helpful to me? What we have discovered is that veterans suffer significantly on a significant number of emotional levels. And you mentioned the 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 fact that veterans are two times more likely to die of an overdose. The other factors we know is that two-thirds, if not more, veterans that are suffering from PTSD are of substance use disorder. But ultimately, if we can work on the wellness of a veteran, we can overcome the suicides, we can overcome the substance use disorder, and we can really find ways to help. So one of the programs that we have is we have a veterans program.
program that has been developed by veterans for veterans. It was done with the assistance of the Wounded Warrior Project and Walmart to pilot and develop this program. The program is your journey from coping to thriving. And the pathway for us is to help veterans find out what their goals are, find goal setting, learn self-help techniques, learn wellness techniques, and really find their pathway to the future. And uh, we've done that rather successfully. Uh, we'll have a showcase for that later in this month where we'll highlight it again as we'll reach out to provide that to others. But we've done that in Mayport, Florida, San Antonio, Texas, and uh, Philadelphia. Philadelphia, and we've done some lessons and lunch and learn lessons elsewhere throughout the country. We also have separate programs for military spouses because we know that military spouses really has the toughest job, whether it's a military spouse on active duty or a military spouse of a veteran. Their head needs to be really on that same swivel that you had on the aircraft carrier where you, the military spouse has to struggle with the challenges that they face and they have to understand and build their own resiliency. They have to take it, uh, a good understanding and a good uh, perspective of the struggles that the children of the family have, as well as the active duty member or the veteran member. So we have a separate program that's called Your Emotional Rock. It was designed and developed by a Marine, um, a former Marine, and also a clinical social worker, where we really talk to the military spouse about uh, the weight that they are taking on their backs. And if you cannot understand how to unpack those things, how to understand where wellness is and how to deal with stress factors, you really can't be successful. And so if we, uh, when we do our best to go out, we truly try to work with the veteran as well as the spouse to work that together as a solid package. Uh, and there's, there's, other, there's a number of other programs of just public awareness uh, and uh, signage or going into veterans hospitals or VA hospitals, uh, military hospitals, and do whatever we can to educate folks to ask questions and not just to go down a pathway that could lead to addictive behavior, but also to find alternatives to alcohol or a drug use or something to deal with the mental health challenges that you have and to address those. Mm -hmm. And as you guys cover the veteran space so well, um, I, I want either one of your takes on this, but uh, I've talked to so many war fighters, you know, in the last decade, and it would seem as though the trajectory to the on-ramp to drug addiction, if you will, begins very, I don't want to say innocently, but it begins with their with their pain management it begins with the VA's prescribing a pill for everything and some of these things are in fact opiates they will give you the pain management is the VA getting better at this are we still seeing um warfighters being recommended the drugs that actually are the on ramp to this addictive thing that is heroin and fentanyl yeah, I would I would start by saying that a, a I think a substantial number of the people we have who are veterans who are uh, uh, suffering from substance use uh, ha had that before they even became a veteran. You know, if you were in Afghanistan and you were subjected to uh, you know an IED or some other kind of physical stressor or mental stressor, there's a good chance that you were prescribed some kind of a pain reliever while you were on active duty, and and in fact you may have left active duty because of that uh, in somewhat unfair terms, right? I mean, you, it not, wasn't necessarily your fault that you became addicted because you were in pain, uh, but now you are, you know, potentially discharged for uh, reasons that are less than honorable or what have you. So, so I think that a lot of that is carried into the VA. And I, I do think that the VA uh, and we've, I've talked personally to a good friend of mine who is the VA secretary, Dennis McDonough, and they, they are taking this on 
they are trying to make sure there's discipline in how they are are uh, using uh, pain relievers, uh, as the rest of, as of the medical community is as well. There's still a long way to go, both in the medical and dental communities, frankly, in in responsible prescription. And again, as Safe Project, we are not against using opioids as pain relievers. They just need to be used responsibly for either acute pain, uh, operation, or you know, bone break or something like that, for short term. And then there are certain types of chronic pain that that at low levels properly managed, maybe an opioid drug is is part of the solution. But just handing them out, you know, when you go have your wisdom teeth out as an 18-year-old and having the dentist just prescribe a month's supply of Percocet is not the answer. Uh, We can do much, much better than that. Mm. And that's fast. Yeah, I was gonna say that's fascinating to hear that you have Dennis McDonough's ear because I often wonder if he knows from top down the history of the combat cocktail, the history yeah. of the vets that are on the benzos and are on the Paxils and are on the Seroquel to sleep and are on this and that yes. and the pain management tools. They're high as 10 midgets in the mountains. You know, the yeah. second they begin the recovery from their physical wounds and it's, yeah. it's so unfortunate. So I'm glad you're lobbying there and I'm glad and you I, have his ear. And a lot of that is, is uh, in defensive dentist is, is decentralized. The VA is a very decentralized organization. Uh, you know, the regions have sort of sovereignty over their own affairs. The individual hospitals have sovereignty over their own affairs, essentially. And, and you know, there's not this sort of central apparatus that has complete control over, you know, prescription policies and things like that. So they're doing, I think they're doing the best they can. There's, there's more that the entire medical community can, can do much better. And we also need to take care of proper care of the people who are in this situation now by making it easy for them to get treatment, uh, paying for it, uh, and uh, you know, shepherding them on the road to uh, being in a long-term recovery. Uh, we've got a lot of hard work, and it's going to cost some money to do this. Mm-hmm. Phil, the, the VA is doing a great job through their conduit program to be more comprehensive and more um, uh, centralized in how they do and deal with opioids and overdoses. But the real important part of this is that there's a balance. There's a balance between proper pain care and the addictive behavior. And what we do know is that some people could become addicted to an opioid after three or five days, and others could be uh, could take opioids for the rest of their lives and have no signs and no concerns of addiction. So it's really in control and awareness that there are risks to an opioid and not just leaving it around. And we're as much to blame as anyone else by leaving opioids in our medicine cabinets uh, when we're done using them saying, oh, that's okay. You know, I might need it another time. That's a misuse. And what we do know is that 80% of those that are on heroin today started with a misuse or an overuse of a prescribed opioid. So we are getting the education out is just as important, but the VA is, is, is truly improving. Mm. The other okay. thing that's getting people out there is, is when they are in chronic long-term pain uh, and they get cut off, for one reason or another, they either can't afford to continue to pay for it or they're just cut off. You know, their only recourse is to go to the street and, and a substantial number of that hundred thousand overdoses, uh, fatal overdoses is counterfeit pain pills uh, because they're cheaper. They're more readily available. And if you're desperate, you're going to go get one of those things. Uh, and you don't know what's inside. It could be benign. It could be uh, enough to kill you. Wow. Let's get into that a little bit too. That's also on the website. Uh, you can get a pretty decent education on fentanyl and where it is, but you just mentioned something I didn't even know and that there's counterfeit 
pain pills out there. What all do we need to know? Let's take the counterfeit pain pills now aside. What do we need to know? Well, the first thing you need to know is that um, it's very easy to produce. It's very inexpensive to produce. And it's very easy to get across our borders, not from people carrying it through the desert. It's coming in through packages, FedEx packages, UPS packages, mail packages. And, uh, you know, and small quantities are enough to kill a, a, a lot of people. So it's, it's like the perfect storm of difficulty in trying to interdict it. And if you look at what's actually going on down in Mexico, there's, there's very little, um, uh, or there's a decrease in the amount of heroin that's being grown, poppy that's being grown, even marijuana that's being grown, because it is just so easy and so cheap to make the fentanyl. So that's one thing that people need to know is that it, it's out there everywhere. It's being laced into all manner of drugs, cocaine, amphetamines, uh, heroin, and uh, a very, very malicious thing about uh, uh, prescription pain pills that look just like the real thing. It's everywhere. So uh, you just don't know what you're getting. When, and it's, it's really tragic to see anybody die from this, but to see a young person who's trying cocaine for the first time because their buddies got them to do it. Uh, and to die that night uh, is just, you know, that never used to happen. It used to be, you know, hardcore people who were addicted, you know, uh, were were falling by the wayside. And that's tragic enough, right? But uh, it's it's a very, very dangerous time. And we all need to make sure our kids are aware of the dangers. And, and it's hard to talk to your kids about this because they kind of roll their eyes, right? Uh, but they need to know how dangerous this stuff really is. Hmm. And, you know, and you look what, at the checklist and, and you know, if you're going to do this, even if you don't think you're going to do this, carry some naloxone with you in case something happens to a friend. Uh, and be aware of the Good Samaritan rules that if you save somebody's life and you call the first responders and the cops show up, you cannot be prosecuted uh, for for alerting uh, the you know first responders to somebody who's in distress. Uh, there's a, a lot of education that is lacking out there. And I freely admit that, you know, one of the reasons if we knew then what we know now about this crisis, we'd still have our son with us because there are things we would have done differently. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad you point that out. Um, not, not just about your son, but about the whole um, it's no longer the Jim Morrison's or the Kurt Cobain's or the, or, or the overdose deaths are not, from the community of the most hardcore drug user that's been chasing the demons for decades. Um, it is the first timer. It is the guy on vacation in Miami, the college co-ed on spring break, you know, here's a bump, here's a blast. Let's get high, you know, kind of, I don't want to say that's innocent, but it's certainly not in the same realm as, you know, a Belushi or like somebody yeah. that's been like a hardcore drug user for a long time. Yeah. It is. It so can also be out there. It can also be malicious, Phil. Uh, one of our board members alerted us to situations in New York where people are spiking drinks with fentanyl. Uh, you know, the person overdoses uh, pretty much on the spot. They take wallet keys, go to the apartment, rob the apartment, and off off they go. So uh, it's uh, it's it's even worse than we think. Oh, God bless. Yeah. All right. Um, you started to get into one thing that I found very interesting on the website, and that is this safety checklist. Uh, we've talked about a couple of them, but let me just pull it up in front of me real quick so we can get through a few of them, because this is what I thought was. Um, I don't I didn't expect to see this on an information website. I didn't expect to see this on like a drug awareness campaign. Uh, this is written to a drug user sounding almost like from 
a drug user because you talk about these things that I think uh, the prohibitionist would just go, oh, well, just don't do them and you're fine. Nah, this checklist gets into some granular details we need to remember as users. Uh, let's start with the first one, carrying um, in the lock zone. Uh, yeah. Jeff, expand on that or either one of you. Go ahead, Jeff. So naloxone is a life-saving drug. It, uh, when an opioid um, takes over your brain, it goes onto the receptors and stops you from breathing. Naloxone, uh, a simple um, shot of naloxone in your nose will break that off of that and revive you um, and, and revive the individual to do that. It's non-toxic. There's no harm to using naloxone. And that's what uh, Admiral Winnefeld was referring to early on. And that is that if you're going to try it, you should, uh, if you're going to experiment or uh, be in a situation. That's why we want people to be aware of naloxone and the life-saving capability of naloxone. And, and, and to get to the underlying comment, the reason we have this and we have a safety plan is because we know that addiction is a disease and we know we can't just say no. We know that people will go and get treatment when they are ready to get treatment, when they are capable and at that mode. In the meantime, we've got to do everything we can to save lives. And that's why we have that safety plan. And whether that is someone uh, like the, uh, the the Morrison example you gave, or just a young man who saw someone else get an advantage with Adderall at school and then buys it on the web or buys it out in town. And that's what we need to do. We have to have that available uh, to, to help people save lives. And that's why we have the safety plan. Mm. Not blaming people for not being able to swim. Always carry the life preserver. I love it. Well, Let's and I'll tell you, I, to be honest with you, Phil, when I travel domestically, I always carry naloxone with me because you never know when you're going to run into somebody on, on an airplane or in a train or something who's overdosing, you might be able to save a life. So you, might, you don't have to wow. be a user to carry it. Amen. All right. Um, check your supply. Here's another one that was like really kind of mind blowing to me. It's again, not, not prohibition, not saying look the other way and just don't do it. You're saying, Hey, okay. If you are caught up in this, check your supply. What is it I'm supposed to be looking for in my drugs to, to, you know, to look for? I'll take this, uh, and, and if you want to follow on, Admiral, please do. In, in part, we know that fentanyl's out there, and there's ways to test the drugs for fentanyl. If you purchase drugs um, out in town, uh, there you can buy or receive a fentanyl test strip. They're about a dollar each. We've been distributing into certain communities, and the test strips will, uh, depending upon how the drugs are being used, the test strips can test, make sure there's no fentanyl in the drugs and that they are safe. Uh, and if they're not safe, obviously you don't want to use those. So that's why we want you to check them. And I, I would hasten to add that the, the test is not foolproof, uh, because it depends on how the drug is uh, put together. It may be that the, you know, in a counterfeit pill that the fentanyl is, is harder to detect with a strip or it's buried inside or something like that. So it's not like a foolproof. Okay. I tested this thing with a fentanyl strip, so I'm safe. What <clears throat> it's really sort of the reverse. If you test it and you see fentanyl, then you probably shouldn't use the pill, but that doesn't tell you there's no fentanyl in there. So it's it's just it's not a you know 100 percent, but it, it's one more tool in your kit to to try to avoid a tragedy. Mm-hmm. And to get another tool in the kit, here's number three, and it's a don't use alone. You know, people think about doing drugs or you know being in the party crowd or doing it like that, but I think a lot of and this may be even true more so among the veteran community, but a lot of us that maybe are uh, have had chronic pain switched over then into drug use might not want to readily admit that to anybody. We might be using it in 
you know, in quiet, hidden from our own family. Um, talk to me about the resources or what you're saying about don't use alone. Well, we just know that um, whatever we can do to encourage folks not to do uh, to take drugs alone is really the key. Uh, because the receptors will cut off your breathing, you only have a short period of time. If we can overcome the shame that there is a problem with taking drugs, I mean, there obviously is a problem, but if, there, if addiction is a disease and we can overcome the shame of addiction being a disease and that there are different factors that might lead to addictive behaviors, you're not there now, uh, we'd be more likely to get folks to to, to at least come forward and, and to have that friend with them. Uh, but if you don't have a friend, that's going to lead to the overdose. And, and you can't treat yourself with naloxone. Right. It's not possible. You have to be with somebody who does it for you. That's, that's, you know, the buddy system. We're all used to that from, from mm -hmm. uh, being in, a, in the service, right? Fascinating. Okay. Um, again, we talked about testing for fentanyl. There are test strips available. If you are, or you know someone that is immersed in this life, this lifestyle and the painful grips of this addiction, make sure they have some of these test strips. Uh, slow down was another one on the checklist, which again is, is a, is a reasonable thing. Um, you talked a little bit about people that maybe, um, have a break from recovery. You noted that it's nonlinear and that people can obviously try to recover and then they can relapse. Um, why is slowing down especially important for those that maybe have are coming off of a period of abstinence? I'll take that. Um, go ahead, Admiral. Well, I was going to say that um, there, it, it's very likely that somebody who ends up in long-term recovery has tried recovery several times before they get there. It's just, it's just very you know, prevalent. So you just can't, you can't give up. Uh, we had a young man working for us who was remarkable, who told us that he tried 40 different times to uh, get himself off of uh, heroin and finally uh, sought treatment and found uh, really quality treatment and has been doing very well now, probably for what, two or three years, Jeff. And, so, you know, we're very hopeful for him that he's, he's gotten himself into long-term recovery. And, you know, once you get into truly long-term recovery, then, then the odds are pretty good you're going to make it. So the, the thing that's so dangerous about uh, relapsing, uh, and this is sort of what happened to our son, is that uh, when you stop using, the brain literally physically recovers. Most people don't think of it as a physical recovery, but those those receptor opioid receptors in your brain uh, became very saturated when you were using uh, and to the point where you had to use more in order to get the same high, but more importantly, you had to use more in order to prevent, um, you know, the uh, withdrawal symptoms. So now you quit and you go into recovery for a while and those opioid receptors reset themselves uh, it, gradual, very gradually, six months to a year to completely re reset themselves. And now if you relapse and you use the same amount of the drug that you needed when they were desensitized, you truly overpower those receptors and it's much easier to have a fatal overdose. So it's ironic, but you know, one of the most dangerous times is when somebody is coming out of, you know, sort of long-term treatment in a controlled environment and is now out there in the world again. And this is exactly what happened to our son is that he, he overdosed on, you know, a month after he uh, came out of treatment. Uh, so that's so it, it's it, people need to know these things. It's not common knowledge that if you have a son or a daughter or a loved one who is is now uh, in that situation, you need to be doubly vigilant and doubly supportive. Uh, 
uh, of of keeping them uh, in recovery if you can. Right on. So glad you guys have assembled this checklist and all the information, all the initiatives, all the information and awareness that you're putting out there, uh, not only for individuals, but for cities, for states, for schools. Um, just it's vital that we talk about this in these kinds of real pragmatic terms. Again, not just prohibitionist, not just judgment, not just, you know, saying you need to be a good citizen. I mean, these are these are people get involved in this area and end up in this space for a variety of reasons. But once they're there, we need to talk to them in real pragmatic terms. And I think that's what you guys are great at doing. Uh, final thoughts from either of you just on the safe project and um, you know, what, what, what we need to know, what veterans need to know. Well, I'd say, first of all, go to our website. You, you've uh, feel we are grateful that you managed to visit it and, and snorkel around a little bit and see what we're up to. Uh, the, this, the website is safeproject.us. It's not .com or .org. It's, it's safeproject.us. And you'll find something in there for yourself. I, I have, it's rare for me to run into somebody in this country, especially since we've sort of destigmatized ourselves, and, and, um, uh, who ha- hasn't intersected this crisis in one way or another, either through direct experience or a family member or a friend uh, who, who uh, has not touched it in one way or another. There's something on that website for everybody. Uh, and uh, the key thing, I think, is is to, you know, maybe people can take the no shame pledge, which is about understanding the disease, that it is a disease, not a moral failing, and that you'll do everything in your power to support somebody who's in the throes of this disease. They're not themselves. You have to understand what's going on with them. Uh, and it takes a lot of love to get somebody through that process. Uh, and, um, you know, just uh, overall awareness on the public's part of the, the dimensions and the, na- and the true nature of this crisis is vital. And, you know, I, I'll, I'll just close by saying it, it breaks my heart that we had to lower the flags to half staff for a million COVID victims. Uh, obviously, we've had some real tragedies lately with uh, gun violence uh, and, uh, you know, a lot of attention being paid to that. While quietly over the last decade or so, we've lost over a million people and over 100,000 people last year to drug overdoses. And because of stigma, uh, you don't see the kind of attention paid to that. But we desperately need to to get this crisis under control. We got AIDS under control. We managed to manage the stigma from AIDS. We got to manage the stigma from this. That's the key that unlocks the door to all the other things that we need to do. So thanks, Phil, for your help in highlighting this. It's been a great discussion for us. And Jeff, uh, I, I think the Admiral said it best, but at the end of the day, the important thing is that this isn't someone else's problem. This is our problem. Uh, each year we are losing more and more people. Last year, 100,000 people have died from an overdose. It's preventable. The no shame stigma pledge that we have. The no shame pledge is just a simple way of encouraging folks to accept the fact that addiction is a disease and you'll do whatever you can to help out and learn the factors of a disease. That's the military spirit we have. But for veterans that are out there, we have programs for veterans. Just jump on our webpage. We'll find something to get you the help that you need and to make sure that uh, you can serve and continue to serve uh, in the capacity that you might want to to help us fight this fight or to at least help you through the struggles that you might be facing. Well, I can't thank you both enough for what you're doing out there. Uh, I've read through it. This website is raw talk. It is stuff that will make sense to the loved one of a user or a user themselves. Uh, it is 
it is a dynamic program and you guys are reaching out in all the right areas. So I can't thank you enough. Again, it's safeproject.us. Mr. Jeff Horowitz, former JAG officer, my Navy shipmate. Great to meet you. And uh, my former XO, Admiral Winnefeld, gone on to do great things and still doing great things uh, for our country. Uh, thank you so much, sir. It's been a pleasure to be with you, Phil. Good luck and keep up the great work. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.